Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. of you love to receive those little flyers uh, that the estate agents stick into your intercom or into your gate. It's so amazing when they do that. I absolutely love it. Um, you know, because you can't leave it there. It's just going to bother you. You know, I have. Once I was like, I'm not touching it. I'm not going to be a part of your system. So I'm not touching your flyer. And it, like three days later, I was like, I have to remove this thing. So what I did is I took it down and I refused to look at it and I ripped it up without looking. I won't even look at one house for sale. Um, and because uh, I, I hate getting those things. Um, but this week, it happened again, and as I took the, that flyer out from my intercom, my eyes happened to catch just a little byline, just a little tag they put at the bottom that said, live your best life. And that's really what we've been talking about. You know, everybody is trying to tell us how to live our best lives. Instagram's telling us this is what it looks like. You've got to travel. You've got to make so much money. You've got to live in a house like this, thanks to state agents. You've got to, you know, you've got to do all these things, and then your life will be full, and you'll be satisfied, and you'll be happy, and you'll be, and, you know, you'll be living a great life. But the book of Jeremiah reveals something deeper to us than just all the things that people so often run around in in this life. They find that they have all the money, yet they're still not quite satisfied. They have the beautiful home, but there's still something missing. They have, you know, the relationship they dreamed of, but it still doesn't quite fulfill in the way that they thought it would. And so we have a generation of people chasing things that just happen to not fulfill them. And in the book of Jeremiah, we see God shows us we can discover how to live life best. It's really about what God does with Jeremiah as he reaches into his life and fulfills a plan and a purpose through him. And we believe that that's what God wants to do for each of us here at Anchor Church. He doesn't want us just to be people who attend, just to be people who are religious, just people who, who show face. He wants us to be people that are engaged with the journey, that are on a road with him, that, that are being shaped, that are being molded, that are becoming something that God desires for us to be so that we can fulfill a greater plan so that we can experience what life at its best truly looks like. And this is what he does with, with Jeremiah. This is the beauty of our walk with Jesus, the essence of grace. You may have come here today, and you might be in a space where you're feeling pretty fed up with yourself, where you're kind of disillusioned with your efforts to change or to make a better life for yourself. Come on, how many of you, we're, in, we're at the end of January now. You know what mid-January is? The graveyard of New Year's resolution. Some of you are like, this is my year. This year I'm changing everything. Two weeks later, oh, it's just going to be another one of those. Right, we become disillusioned for so many years. We've decided that we'll be like this or we'll change like this or we'll stop doing that. Only to find that the one thing that, we, that really eludes us in trying to do that is consistency, right? It's consistency. It's one thing to be able to do something great, to be really compassionate or really kind or really awesome one time, and we do those things, and then we take a photo of it, and we put it on Instagram to kind of like, you know, set up a memorial to that one time we were awesome. But real life looks a little different. How many of you would agree with me? Because consistency is difficult. It's easy to be great once off. It reminded me of a time when I was playing cricket in high school, and uh, in my final year of high school, I was playing for our first team, 
And at some point during the season, we had a new kid join the school. And he joined the school, and, and, uh, and he was an incredibly good cricketer. He was a Gauteng spin bowler. And when he joined the school, when he joined the team, I felt like I was the weak link in the first team. And even though I was the opening bowler and I bowled pace, I was pretty much convinced that I was going to be dropped in favor of this new kid that joined. And so I remember one Saturday morning before a, before a game, um, it was a bit rainy in the morning, game was slightly delayed, and I was sitting with one of my friends who was the wicketkeeper. And his name was Matt. And I said, Matt, I'm going to be dropped, man. This, I think it's my last game for the first. This guy is so good. He's going to take my place. And he was like, you know what? Don't worry about that. Just go out there and smash some wickets. And eventually the game got going. I was the opening bowler bowling the first ball of the game. And I charged in. I bowled one of the best balls I can ever remember bowling. It was just short of a length. Had some good pace just outside off. Nipped a little bit off the seam. The opening batsman went forward to play a forward defensive shot. It nicked his bat, went straight through to my mate at wicketkeeper who caught him wicket off the first ball of the game. It's called a royal duck. It never happens. And my friend, he came running down the pitch, jumped on me and started shouting, who's getting dropped now? <laughs> the answer was me by the next game. <laughs> because it's one thing to bowl one good ball. It's a lot harder to bowl a good over. It's harder than that to bowl a good innings. And it's incredibly difficult to bowl well inning after inning after inning. And so the issue was, even though I had moments of brilliant bowling, it wasn't good enough. And so many times, that's our issue. We, we face our inconsistency, and we feel like we're not good enough. We long for that consistency. So many couples are getting married this year in our church. We have a fairly young church. We have, I've got weddings booked between now and the end of the year. And how many of you know weddings are awesome? It's exciting. It's fun. You get to do all the planning. You get to take photos. You know, you get the beautiful venue and the dress and all those amazing moments that you get to share. And just so that you know, we love weddings. We love celebrating those moments. We believe life is made up of those moments. And it's an incredible thing to share. But for all the married people here today, how many of you would agree with me that weddings are easy, marriage is hard, right? There we go. We got some hands. Amen. Hallelujah. I hope, if, I hope if you're a couple that both of you put up your hands, you know. But it's one thing to be beautiful on the day. It's one thing to have the perfect dress and the perfect makeup and the perfect photographer capturing all the perfect moments with the music and the friends and the, and the family. It's another thing to face the realness of life, the challenges of life, the difficulty of life, the inconsistency of your partner on a daily basis. Come on, on the wedding, your bride has got all that makeup on and, you know, beautifully adorned. And then, and then you know, a couple days later, you wake up and you wake up next to, you know, bridezilla, no makeup. You know, none of that, not my wife, though. My wife always looks good, but maybe some of your wives. Um, But the point is that weddings are easy, marriages are hard, commitment is hard, being consistent is hard. And this is one of the main reasons why people don't want to come to church. It's one of the main reasons why people don't want to read the Bible or, or serve Jesus. It's not necessarily that they're always against God or against religion. It's actually just that they're honest. It's actually just that they know themselves. You know, their issue sometimes isn't with God, it's with their own selves, their own lives, their own inconsistency. They face that inconsistency and they go, I'm not good. I know myself. 
I have no place standing in that church raising my hands, singing songs, praying prayers, pretending like I'm a Christian when I know that I struggle with things, when I know that I've got issues in my life. And so they, they, they just want to be honest. They don't want to pretend. They don't want to act as if they can bowl a great, a great ball only to be dropped to the second team. They don't want to get married and then have their partner realize all their flaws. Today's Community Sunday, and, and one of the reasons why people resist community is because they don't want to be vulnerable. They want to keep up a pretense of this is who I am, and once, you know, if I can just keep up this pretense by remaining a little bit disconnected, then I'll feel safe. But community requires commitment. It requires vulnerability. So that's why people stay away. They choose rather to not play cricket. They choose rather to stay single and closed off to relationships. And there may be, in their honesty, some sense of virtue in that. But it's misplaced virtue. Better yet, it's misformed virtue. Because there's something that they, that they miss in that. They're saying to themselves, I know myself and I'm not good enough. I cannot consistently be what I need to be in order to be called a follower of Jesus. So I won't get involved with that. But the critical element that they're missing, we've seen here in Jeremiah, and I'm going to look at that today. There's a critical element. Jeremiah 1.5, we've read this verse a couple of times when God speaks into Jeremiah's life. And he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We've looked at Jeremiah 12, our foundational scripture for the series. 12.5 says, if you've raced with men on foot, like just doing the normal human stuff, and they've worn you out, like general life has worn you out, how can you run with horses? How can you live a supernatural, extraordinary life if you're tired of just general life. So we do see that when God speaks to us and calls us, there's a standard there. And the standard is the standard. God doesn't diminish the kind. He doesn't lower the bar and say, oh, you know what? I know that you're inconsistent. I know you're imperfect. I know you're flawed. I know you struggle. So let me just lower the bar and then everybody can get in and everybody can just, you know, fulfill my plan. He doesn't do that. He calls us to faithful consistency. But how could we possibly answer that call? As inconsistent as we are, how do we say yes to Jesus when he calls us to this kind of life, to run with horses? This was Jeremiah's objection. The first thing that happens when, when God calls Jeremiah, his response isn't, oh, that's so awesome, God, thanks for calling me. His very first response is, but I can't. I don't know how to do that. I'm, a, I'm just a boy. I'm a youth. And I don't know how to speak well. And he has all these objections based on knowing himself and his own inadequacy. But I want to point us back this morning to God's response to Jeremiah's objection that we looked at last week. This is what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 18. He says, stand at attention while I prepare you for your work. I'm making you. There's the thing we miss. That's the critical point that we miss when we stay away from a journey with Jesus because we feel like we're too inconsistent. We miss the fact that God isn't asking you to go out and make yourself perfect and fix yourself and become perfectly consistent and then come serve Him. He asks us to trust Him with all of our imperfection, with all of our inconsistency. He says, stand 
at attention while I do the work I want to do in your life. Stand at attention while I prepare you. Be still and know that I am God. For I am making you. Don't miss that. If you're disillusioned with yourself, if you're thinking, I'm not the one who could do these things, I can't fulfill God's call on my life because I'm not X, Y, and Z, God says, can you just stand and let me do the work that I came to do? I'm making you as impregnable as a castle, immovable as a steel post, solid as a concrete block wall. Doesn't that sound consistent? Doesn't that sound stable and thorough? I'm making you solid. I'm making you immovable. That's what we miss. We look to ourselves instead of to God's grace. We do not make ourselves faithful. His faithfulness makes us faithful. We do not make ourselves consistent. His consistency changes us, makes us consistent. I'm just a boy. I can't speak well. I'm inconsistent, God. Yes, you are. But I'm making you. I'm shaping you. I'm molding you. The only job that we have is to not resist the potter while he shapes the clay. I've got some clay here this morning. And if this clay right now, you know, what I can do with this clay is if I push down, if I put pressure down onto this clay, it's shaped according to my will. It's shaped according to how I impress on it. And God wants our lives to be like that lump of clay. Over and over, he says in the scriptures, I want you to be like this. I want you to be pliable. I want you to be moldable. It's not about being perfect. He's making something. But let him make it. Let him mold you. Let him shape you. Let him impress his own nature on you. My own thumbprint is on this clay right now as I press down. There's something of me that's impressed into that lump of clay. And this is the kind of life, the kind of faith that God calls us to. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm saying, will you be pliable? Pliability over perfection. Trusting over trying. Surrender over striving. Submission over straining. That's what God is asking for. I will shape you. I will mold you. But if this lump of clay that I have here was hardened, if it had hardened itself into, this is my shape, and I'm not bending for anyone, what happens when pressure comes in life? It breaks. It breaks. Life breaks us. It's difficult. and we, This is who I am, and I'm not changing. I had a pastor who always used to say to me, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And sometimes we just need to be flexible. We need to be pliable as opposed to hardening our hearts. So don't worry if you're imperfect, but are you pliable? I'm far more worried about an imperfect, uh, or, or more per worried about a person who isn't pliable than I am about a person who, isn't Im who is imperfect. God asks us to surrender ourselves to Him so that He can shape something beautiful out of our lives. Look at how the Bible tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and a few other scriptures. It says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding, that's our job, just behold, just surrender, just look at Jesus, the glory of the Lord, as in a mirror, some translations say, 
are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the transformation comes from the Lord, not from yourself. Our job is to behold Him. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started your faith. He's the one who will accomplish every good work that He desires to do in your life. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you. Stand at attention while I prepare you for your work. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And this scripture is in Ephesians. It's Galatians 5 verse 22. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I love how self-control is not within your control. <laughs> it's a fruit of the Spirit. I remember going to a pastor's meeting once, and the lady who was speaking there that morning said, you know, the first, I think she said, the first four fruit of the Spirit is up to God. The other five, that's you. Man, I had to bite my tongue not to interrupt and shut down that meeting. I'm like, it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And yes, we cooperate with God's Spirit. Yes, we remain pliable, but ultimately, God is the one who produces this fruit. So you'll come to a place in your life after having walked with God that you'll look back and you go, hey, I'm not struggling with the stuff I used to struggle with. You, won't even, you probably won't even notice it. It's not like a day comes and you're like, oh, it's not now. I'm not struggling any longer. But over time, God completes such a great work in you as He leads you to maturity in your walk with Him that you look back, and only while looking back do you realize, that's how far God has brought me. It's a work He does in your life, and even self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. The essential truth here is that God does in us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the great deception of religion is the idea that you must fulfill your call in your own strength, devoid of an actual relationship with God. There's just no shortcuts here, because that's what we really want. We really want, can I just come to church on Sunday, maybe sing a song, maybe listen to a message, and then maybe do one other thing that's good in the week. Can I just do that, and then it's settled. Then I'm religious, and I'm good, and God can accept me. God's saying, no. I don't call you to a bunch of random acts. I called you to trust in me as a person, an authentic relationship. Surrender your life to him. Know him. Walk with him. Speak to him. Listen to him. Obey him when he commands you, when he speaks to you. Surrender your life. Not can I make up my own thing and just create a little religion that's comfortable. God wants that relationship. Watchman Nee says this. He says, the law makes demands and leaves us helpless to fulfill them. Christ makes demands, but He Himself fulfills in us the very demands He makes. So religion is just a recipe for failure. A recipe for failure. You don't have what it takes. But in Christ, He begins to change us and fulfill those demands. God says to Jeremiah, stand at attention while I prepare you for your work. I'm making you what you need to be. So since we're three weeks into 
you know, the book of Jeremiah, we've been in Jeremiah chapter 1, and we've spoken a lot about him and his life and how God has called him, but we haven't given a lot of context yet to why his mission was so important, to, to all the difficulties that he faced in life, why the, you know, he was in, in such a difficult time in Israel's history and why his call uh, was so important. So I thought I would give you a little bit of context today for the life that, Israel, that, that, that Jeremiah grew up in and what was happening in Israel at that time. Because we see from chapter 2, uh, we were in Jeremiah 1 for three weeks, from chapter 2, God begins to share these prophecies. He begins to speak powerfully through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. And the general undertone of all of it is that God's upset. He's heartbroken over his people. His people have forgotten him. They've forsaken him. He brought them into the promised land, and they all made big promises about how consistently they would remain faithful to him, but now they're at a point where they've completely and utterly discarded their faith and their walk with Jesus. They turned to so-called gods. The temple became a place of cult prostitution, the very temple of God, practicing every kind of evil and calling it the will of God. I can do whatever I want and God will just be okay with it. It even says of the priests in Jeremiah 2 verse 8 that the priests forgot about God. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. And that right there, if I could sum up religion in one scripture, it would be that one. Where people are, are handling the law. It's all about rules. It's all about regulations. It's all about what others must do. It's all about, about trying to be right. But yet those that handle the law, they don't even know God. You know, the Bible says those whom the, in whom the Lord delights, he disciplines. Yes, God corrects, and that idea of discipline, it means to, to rebind, to, to take a vine that's fallen on the ground and lift it up and tie it back on to the line, to, to take an arm that's broken and to tie it close to the body so that it may be healed. It's an act of grace and restoration, not punishment. But God disciplines those in whom He delights. I discipline my own boys, not because I don't like them very much, but because I love them. The problem with religion is all you have is the reproof and the rebuke and the discipline without the delight. And that's what Israel went to. Where's, they're not even asking, where's God? Where's the relationship? God's heart is broken for His people. Jeremiah 2.11, he says, Has a nation changed its gods? He says this through Jeremiah. Even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory, this relationship that they had with me, the fact that I am their God, that I speak to them and work in their lives, for that which does not profit, it has no benefit. It's not living your best life, it's living your worst life. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. That is once again exactly what we do. We have the free gift of God's grace, we can go to the living water at any point and drink and be satisfied and be fulfilled, but instead we will dig our own cisterns. The problem is broken cisterns that can hold no water. It doesn't hold water. It doesn't produce the, 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 the thirst-quenching reserves that we hope it would. Directly preceding the time of Jeremiah, Israel is led by probably the worst king in all of its history, a king by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh 
was an evil king who reigned in Israel for 55 years and completely abandoned everything that had come from Moses and everything that Israel had done before. He encouraged pagan worship so bad that often involved whole communities in sexual orgies. He installed cult prostitutes at shrines throughout the countryside and literally imported wizards and sorcerers from all over the world to enslave people with superstition. At one point, he even placed his own son on the altar and burned him alive in honor of some dark and terrible God. And, and this breaks God's heart. This is why he sends Jeremiah. He's speaking to these people. He wants them to wake up from this deception. They had deified things like murder and greed and lust. Second Kings 2, 21 verse 9 records this. It says, Manasseh led them astray into practices of evil, even exceeding the evil of the pagan nations that God had earlier destroyed. You know, God drove nations out from in front of Israel because they were evil nations. Most of them worshipped the God named Molech, and they would sacrifice infants to this God. They would warm up the hands of that God, this, this brazen statue, and then they would take babies and place them in those hands as an offering for the harvest. And, and, and God detests that. So he drives them away, only for Manasseh, the king of Israel, to start partaking in the same thing and even worse. Jeremiah was born in the last decade of Manasseh's rule. This is the world in which Jeremiah learned to walk and talk and play. No worse environment can be imagined within which to raise a child in Israel at that time. Then at one point, Manasseh passes away and his son, Amon, takes over and everybody hopes this is going to be better. He's going to be a better king. But Amon, Amon turns out to be as bad as his father. And about a few years later, the people of Israel have just had enough. They, they cannot take it anymore. And they end up murdering Amon, leaving an eight-year-old boy, son of Amon, by the name of Josiah, to take the throne. Israel all of a sudden has this boy king, Josiah. And this incredible thing happens. Instead of Josiah being like his father and being like his evil grandfather, there is a God-given innocence and uncorrupt spirit within him. And his desire, even from that young age, is to restore Israel. And the first thing that he decides to restore is the temple. Because the temple was the evidence of God's presence with his people. It's the place that, that they went to to worship. It's the place that they went to to be reminded of who they are as a people and to surrender themselves, to bring the pliability back to their lives. And he says, our worship is corrupt. And if our worship is corrupt, our lives will be corrupt. Anchor Church, if your worship is corrupt, and I'm not talking about what songs you sing on a Sunday. I'm talking about the things that you look to for fulfillment and satisfaction in life. If, if that's corrupt, if what you worship with your life, if what you look to for fulfillment is corrupt, your life will be corrupt. So Josiah says, let's, let's restore Israel to its former glory. Let's restore the places of worship. And as the temple is being restored, they find a scroll, a long forgotten scroll in the temple. Hilkiah, the, the priest, finds it, reads it. 
impacts him. He takes it to Josiah, the king. And he begins to sit, and he sits with Josiah and begins to read that scroll out. And this scroll has such an impact on him that in sorrow for the evilness of his grandfather and his father and, and how Israel had lost its way, he takes his clothes, which was a cultural thing to do, and he rips it open in a sign of repentance. I'm heartbroken over what my nation has become. The scroll that was found turned out to be the, the, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is essentially a record of the speech that Moses gave when the people of Israel had wandered in, in, the, in the wilderness for 40 years and came to the plains of Moab as they were about to cross the river Jordan into the promised land. Moses makes this speech and he says, I want you to choose. I want you to choose to be faithful. I want you to choose to be consistent. I want you to choose the blessing that will come over your life if you follow and walk in the ways of God over being led astray by your own lusts. I said before you, life and death, that's where that famous scripture comes from. Therefore, choose life. It's this passionate cry to the people not to forget God as they go into the promised land. But what happened to Israel? They forgot God. They forgot Him. They weren't consistent. They failed in this. And you know, we, we're so quick to point fingers at Israel. Ugh, those guys. You know, they had the book of Deuteronomy. They made the promises. We are far more inconsistent than they are. Our lives are as inconsistent as Israel every day of the week. And so when they hear these words, it, it cuts Josiah to the heart. And he's like, that's enough. I'm going to turn my life around. Come on, how many of you have done that? I've had enough sin. I've had enough messing around. I've had enough struggle. This is my year. I'm cleaning out the cupboard. I'm, I'm, I'm sorting my life out. This is my year. Josiah does the same. Reform begins in Israel. He begins rebuilding and re restoring the temple. Altars are torn down, false altars. He banishes the vestiges of false worship. Cult prostitutes and sorcerers are scattered. News of the discovery of the scroll spreads throughout the land. And all across Israel, the word of God from the book of Deuteronomy is being taught again. And Jeremiah, as a young prophet, begins preaching in the midst of this reform. He starts this relationship with Josiah where he speaks into Josiah's life. And in Jeremiah 6, 16, we see an example of that. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the crossroads and look around. Ask for direction to the ancient paths, the paths that you've forgotten, where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So the reform at one point then is complete. The temple is restored. Immoral worship is banned. Crime and corruption has stopped. But once again, once again, it's not enough. Your own man-made efforts of religion in order to clean up your act, just like Israel wanted to by restoring the temple and, 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 and banishing every evil thing, is not enough. What Josiah found out, what Israel found out, is that keeping people away from evil things does not make them good. Because the issue isn't with the opportunities that we have to fulfill our evil desires. The issue is that we have evil desires, even when there are no opportunities. Getting rid of evil does not make people good. You can reform the outside, but you cannot reform the heart. And this is the issue. This is why Jeremiah says that the heart of man is desperately sick. 
Who can know it? Who can bend it? Who can mold it? Who can make it good? Soon enough, the people of Israel said all the right things. They attended the temple worship in exactly the right way. They did whatever was expected, but their hearts were still far from God. They were pleased with outward appearance and so saw no need to plunge themselves into the life of true faith. Can I pause for a moment to say, Anchor Church, can we please not be like that? Please, can we not be like that? Please, can we not be the ones who say, oh, I'll take all the outward appearance and I'll, you know, arrive on a Sunday looking great, smelling great, ready to put up my hands in worship without truing allowing God to change us, to shape us like that lump of clay, to mold us into what He longs for us to be. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 15, verse 8. He said, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jeremiah, you know, there's such positivity in Israel. Such positivity. We're back. We're back. Everything's looking good. We're worshiping the right God. We've got the temple going. And, you know, we're, we're good. But Jeremiah, fueled by the passion of the Holy Spirit, isn't satisfied with outward appearances. He's like, ah. So he's that, you know, that downer at the party. You know, the one person who's always complaining. Jeremiah turns out to be that guy. And he wishes he couldn't be that guy, but he just has a desire for something more. In other words, God doesn't want you to pretend like you're living your best life. He actually wants you to be living it. He's not satisfied with anything less. And Jeremiah says, people are crying out, oh, this is the temple, the temple, the temple. We're born again, born again, born again. And he's like, no, you're not. You're not. You know how I know? Jeremiah 7 verse 8, he says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Oh, no, we're great. Only to go on doing all these abominations. You see, what Jeremiah is saying is, is that if you have a genuine relationship with God, and He is busy working in your life like this, He is busy molding it and shaping it and developing it and turning it into what He wants it to look like, then it will look like something different. I've made only a few impressions in this clay this morning, but if you look at it, you'll see that it already looks different to when I started this message. Because there's been an influence from my will on that clay. God's saying, you, you're all saying that you're reformed, I'm delivered, I'm saved, I'm healed, I'm everything. But why are there no impressions on your heart? Why is there no change in your life? You can have the form of religion without the transformation of faith. 2 Timothy 3.5 complains about the same thing. Paul writing to Timothy says, they act religious, but they reject the power that could make them godly. There is a power that will actually cause you to become what you desire to be. And it's the grace of God. It's his a relationship with Him. God's intentions for His people then and now is something more real and authentic and altogether life-changing than our forms of religion. He's not looking for the right words in the right place at the right time. He wants your heart. He wants a real relationship leading to authentic reform from the inside out. So how does God communicate this to his people through Jeremiah? Besides for these, these prophecies saying it outright, he shows some prophetic 
and even poetical imagery. He says this to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18 verse 1. He says, the word of the Lord, sorry, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, he said, arise and go down to the potter's house. Go to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. It, it, it was corrupt. It, it didn't turn out to be what it was supposed to be. Maybe you felt like that. This is not the way I wanted my life to be. Maybe I'm not becoming who I think God called me to be. I'm, it, it's spoiled. Here's the hope in that statement. The clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. He reworked it. He used the same lump of clay, the same spoiled lump of clay to produce something according to his will. God ultimately speaks this message to Jeremiah saying, this is the kind of relationship that I want with my people. I want them to recognize that I am their creator, that I am the potter and they are the clay. I want them to trust in my love and surrender to me so that I can mold them into something beautiful. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Romans 9, 20 and 21 says, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? So this is what faith looks like because it declares something prophetic. At that moment in Israel's history, they are spoiled. They are corrupt. They are broken. But God says, what I want you to know is prophetically, looking forward in your life, I'm reshaping. I'm reworking. I'm remolding. Don't give up on the image of what I will do with and through your life. The work is not done yet. God's not done with you yet, Anchor Church. He's not done with you yet. You may feel like your life has been spoiled, like you've faced the consequences of your own sin, like it's been smashed. But God is the potter, and He will rework you into something significant. Pottery is actually quite significant. We don't realize this. As simple as it is, it's significant. Because first of all, it represents a time in human history where people could go from being wanderers, being nomadic, having to move from water source to water source and food source to food source, to being able to, for the first time, store things. Imagine if you had no containers in your house. There were no containers in all of creation, and you needed to bring some milk home. You'd have to go to the store every day to go and get another drink of milk or another drink of water. But when pottery was invented, it enabled communities to form because now they could store the grain. They could store the food. They could store the water and didn't need to travel. So they could settle down and build homes and start communities. It's a significant invention. But one of the most incredible things, and I think this is why God uses it so much in Scripture, one of the most incredible things is that pottery is useful. We know that. It's created. It's intended for use. But since it's molded by the hand of a person, it cannot help but take on 
some of the characteristics and the nature of the person that creates it. It ends up having infused in the usefulness something of its creator, something beautiful. Pottery is not just useful, it's also beautiful. And as God does something in your life, as His hands are at work molding and shaping you, it's not just going to make you useful for His kingdom. It's going to reflect something of Him. It's going to reflect His beauty. It's going to reflect the beauty of His nature and His love and His character. And people are going to see that in you. So this is what God wants to do. He wants to make you useful and beautiful. In the next chapter, God tells Jeremiah to do something quite dramatic. He says, so I I want to shape my people. I want to shape my nation. But they are hardened in their hearts. They are proud. They are resistant. They refuse to be molded. So what I want you to do, Jeremiah, is I want you to go and fetch the elders of the city. And I want you to bring them out. And I want you to speak my word to them and say, I long to shape you, Israel. I long to mold you. I long for you to become what I've intended for you to be. But if you continue to resist me, if you choose to harden your hearts, your life ends up looking like this. It's, it, it will be broken. It will be destroyed. It will be smashed. It will face consequence. If I drop this lump of clay, it couldn't break. It wouldn't break because it's pliable. And we don't need to wonder whether or not this is going to happen to our lives. It happened long ago. Come on, let's be honest. We've all faced this. We've all faced our own brokenness. This is not necessarily judgment as much as it is just the consequence of our lives, of how we live. But once more, God says, even if that's what your life looks like right now, if you will turn to me and become soft in your heart one more time, trust me. Will I not rework what was spoiled for my own glory? Will you not experience the grace of God in your own life as I still shape you into another vessel? God says, I'll rework your life if you put your faith in me. Only this time, let him be the one to do the molding. Let him be the one to do the shaping. Once again, You don't have to be perfect. Oftentimes when we pretend to be perfect, God has to smash our delusions in this way. And only when you realize and admit your your state of utter desperation, then he goes, thank you. Can you now come to me and allow me to do the work I so graciously want to do in your life? This is an opportunity for us to fix our eyes on Jesus and become something both useful and beautiful as God shapes us from the inside till we begin to experience the kind of consistency that we've only ever dreamed of. I believe that that's what God wants to do in your life. And I believe that that's what God wants to do in our church. And it's just a simple moment, just a simple prayer to say, Lord, I'm availing myself to you. I just want to pray for us just for one moment. I just feel like we can say this. And even though I'll be the one speaking, you can speak in your own heart to God right now. Let's just close our eyes for a moment.
Father, we come before you. And we recognize, God, that if it's left up to us, we make an absolute mess of our lives. We fail in so many ways. We're hard-hearted. We're proud. We're broken. But God, I pray now my voice, but every heart in this place praying in its, in its own voice and in its own right. And we say, Lord, we do not want to be resistant. We know we're not perfect. We know we struggle. We know that we're inconsistent. But we choose to not put our faith in our own abilities today. We choose to put it in you. God, we ask you, make us pliable. God, we ask you, come and work in our hearts, shape us, mold us, cause us to become what only you could cause us to become, God. Help us, God, to live that kind of life that so reflects your glory that it is utterly fulfilling and satisfying and impactful to everybody around us. God, do that in our church as well as a community. We say, Lord, that we don't want to tell you who we're supposed to be. We're coming to you and saying, God, make us who you intend for us to be. We surrender our lives to you now. By faith in our hearts, we say, Lord, we see the future. We know you will do something amazing in and through us. We give you all the glory for that. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. I believe God's going to do it. Stay pliable. Stay pliable. Let God work and mold your life.